Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening, where we continue to reflect into this special topic of mercy, a topic that has had us exploring mercy not only in the light of sacred scripture, but also um, in the light of uh, the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. Pope Francis just talked about how um, mercy without works is dead. So it was fitting that we explored the corporal and spiritual works of mercy. And uh, more recently, we have taken up uh, the topic of mercy within this historical narrative to see how, as we move into the 20th century, this chief attribute of God, mercy, has very much become the center point of the church's life. So with that, we were talking about St. Faustina. Now, the last time we were together, we were reflecting into the end times as it was a point of emphasis in the message of divine mercy given to Sister Faustina of Kavaska, right? And it is here where I would like to pick up. Now, again, as I noted last week, <laughs> when we talk about the end times, we must always remember that we are dealing with a great mystery. But in saying that, one can at least begin to outline what we are dealing with in the light of the deposit of faith, that is to say, in the light of sacred scripture and sacred tradition. Now, I want to turn our attention to Benedict XVI and a conversation slash interview he had with Peter Seewald. You have heard me talk about him. He's a journalist. He was the one who did all the interviews with Benedict XVI. Listen to what Benedict XVI had to say in response to a question from Peter Seewald. Here's the question. All of Jesus' prophecies have come to pass, except one that has yet to be fulfilled the prophecy of his second coming. Its fulfillment will finally make the word redemption fully true. I like the way he phrased that, huh? <laughs> you have coined the term, Holy Father, eschatological realism. What exactly does that mean? Say that three times fast. Eschatological realism. <laughs> We've talked about that word before. Eschatological or eschatology is the study of the end times or the end things, right? This is Benedict's response. It means that these things are not some kind of fictitious utopia. In fact, we always have to keep present in our minds the fact that he tells us, with the greatest certainty, I will come again. This statement comes before everything else. This is also why the Mass was originally celebrated facing east toward the returning Lord, who is symbolized in the rising sun. Every Mass is therefore an act of going out to meet the one who is coming. In this way, his coming is also anticipated, as it were. We go out to meet him, and he comes, anticipatively already now. I like to compare this with the account of the wedding at Cana. The first thing the Lord says to Mary there is, what? My hour has not yet come. But then, in spite of that, he gives the new wine, as it were, anticipating his hour, which is yet to come. This, here he goes, eschatological realism becomes present in the Eucharist 
We go out to meet him as the one who comes, and he comes already now in anticipation of his hour, which one day will arrive once and for all. If we understand this as we should, we will go out to meet the Lord who has already been coming all along. We will enter into his coming, and so will allow ourselves to be fitted into a greater reality beyond the everyday, just as we were before. Mm. Now, it's interesting. The Greek word for coming is what? Parousia, which best translates as appearance. But it can also mean arrival, visitation. Elsewhere, as he certainly hinted here, Benedict XVI spoke of the parousia as the Eucharist in the already but not yet. By the way, let us footnote something here. Remember that when Jesus is instituting the Eucharist, he says, this is the blood of the New Testament, right? This is the blood of the New Testament. We often think of the New Testament strictly within the context of the 27 corpus of books. Yet, in the early church, in the earliest days of the church, when that phrase was used, New Testament, that was synonymous with what? The Eucharist. The Eucharist, my friends. So, we often get the question asked, where is the Mass in the New Testament? Brothers and sisters in Christ, the Mass is the New Testament, okay? Because if we are going to talk about the gospel as God's transformative love, there is nothing more that transforms us than the Eucharist itself. Huh? Now, in keeping with the context of the divine mercy, let us turn our attention to Seawald's <laughs> next question, which is most interesting and certainly brings us to the heart of Sister Faustina's message. Listen to what he asks here. About 80 years ago, Faustina Kowalska, the Polish nun canonized by John Paul II, heard Jesus say in a vision, you will prepare the world for my definitive return. Are we obliged to believe that? How about that? Seawald goes to Sister Faustina, the very one that we've been talking about, and here's Benedict's response. If one took this statement in a chronological sense, as an injunction to get ready, as it were, immediately for the second coming, it would be false. But it is correct if one understands it in the spiritual sense that was just explained as meaning that the Lord is always the one who comes and that we are always also preparing ourselves for his definitive coming, precisely when we go out to meet his mercy and allow ourselves to be formed by him. By letting ourselves be formed by God's gift of mercy as a force to counteract the mercilessness of the world, then we prepare, as it were, for his own coming in person and for his mercy. Beautiful. So we prepare for the Lord's coming, not by being consumed by fear, but by following the message of divine mercy. By, in the words of Benedict XVI, allowing ourselves to be formed by God's gift of mercy. So, what does this mean in concrete terms to say, Jesus, I trust in you, but to allow the aforementioned process of transformation to take place in our hearts? And as Benedict would remind us, we do this most profoundly in the Eucharist, huh? If the parousia, that Greek word for coming, is the quote-unquote already but not yet moment of the end times, and every time we receive the Eucharist, we enter into the already, not yet. 
being transformed in his body and blood. As it has been said, our transformation in Christ is the second coming of Christ, right? Every time we receive the Eucharist, that is the New Testament, we bring Christ to other. We are the second coming of Christ. This is a powerful way of thinking about it. And my dear friends, it is how the early Christians thought about it. Now, an additional point here is that in our own already but not yet transformation in the Eucharist and subsequent devotion to Christ in word and deed, we are being lifted up, as it were, in the grace of Christ. We are being drawn into the mystical life of the transfiguration, a going up of sorts, and ascending as we climb the mountaintop to breathe the new air of Christ. You know, we just noted that the end times is about mystery. Well, is it not the transfiguration that has us going deeper into the mystery of God? Something we have more or less touched upon before, but certainly should consider again the transfiguration, that event where we ascend the mountaintop with, who were those apostles? Peter, James, and John, those select three. Consider this mystical episode. The Greek word for transfiguration translates as just not any kind of change, but with Christ, a change that involved a going beyond the form that he had without ceasing to be who he was. Without ceasing to be who he was, he became something more in his appearance. Essentially, revealing a new depth dimension that up to that point again was unseen. In so many ways, we are called to be caught up in this great truth. We are called to go beyond the form that we have, revealing a new depth dimension to who we are and who God is calling us to be. Here we could properly say, of becoming something more in the Eucharist, huh? In this vein, we are to understand that life is not a problem to be solved abruptly and suddenly, but a mystery to be lived continuously and always. Here, listen to what St. Faustina has to tell us. This comes to us from paragraph and entry 283. O oh God, I want to love you as no human soul has ever loved you before. And although I am utterly miserable and small, I have nevertheless cast the anchor of my trust deep into the abyss of your mercy. In spite of my great misery, I fear nothing but hope to sing you a hymn of glory forever. Let no soul, even the most miserable, fall prey to doubt. For as long as one is alive, each one can become a great saint. So great is the power of God's grace. It remains only for us not to oppose God's actions. Mm, some striking words there, huh? <laughs> so in the end, my friends, preparing for the Lord's coming is quite simply very much about the desire to become a saint and help others in the process of becoming a saint, to live in God and to exist for others, to live in the mystery of His great mercy. Are not the lies of the saints constant reminders of the exceptional, oftentimes unusual, ways of God? <laughs> Were not the saints walking contradictions to the quote-unquote normalcy of their times? This is exactly what set them apart, my friends. Mindful that, of course, the word holiness literally means to be set apart, huh? Saints don't blend in. The saints are the lasting proof that greatness comes from dedicating time to the wellspring of prayer 
because it is there that they and we discover the greatness of God's mission for us. Brothers and sisters, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. Let us remember that. What did the popular Leon Blois once say? The only real sadness, the only real failure, the only great tragedy in life is not to become a saint. Why? Why? Because to be anything less than holy is to remain unactualized. What do I mean? What does it look like when a fish is out of water or when a bird's wings have been clipped? Well, at the very least, we see that and it's sad. But why is it sad? Because the fish needs to be in water if it is going to do what it was created to do, swim. In the case of the bird, the bird needs its wings if it is going to do what it was created to do, fly. And so it is. As sons and daughters of God, if we wish to attain the heights of sanctity and holiness, then we need to receive God's love and mercy and live that mercy out, giving glory to God, doing what we were created to do, right? In other words... If the bird is most free when it is flying and the fish most free when it is swimming, then man is most free when he is loving in God's mercy. Many people believe, if only implicitly, that to be holy is to be stifled, uh, less free, less themselves. As it has been said, they think it's, it's hell all the way to heaven and heaven all the way to hell. As Christians, it is vital that we understand this is profoundly wrong. God is good. He is not holding out on us as Satan suggested to Eve. He is for us because he is love. And this, this is what rests at the heart of St. Faustina's message, a message that has us returning to the interior life. I, I was going through some of her messages, her diary, and I came across entry 429, and I want to read this to you. Paragraph and entry 429. When I became aware of God's great plans for me, I was frightened at their greatness and felt myself quite incapable of fulfilling them. And I began to avoid interior conversations with him, filling up the time with vocal prayer. I did this out of humility, but I soon recognized it was not true humility, but rather a greater temptation from the devil. When on one occasion, instead of interior prayer, I took a book of spiritual reading, I heard these words spoken distinctly and forcefully within my soul. You will prepare the world for my final coming. These words moved me deeply, and although I pretended not to hear them, I understood them very well and had no doubt about them. Now, we know about the role of Sister Faustina, now St. Faustina, but I want to talk about something else there. Take note of what happened she was wanting to stop that interior prayer, huh? She was wanting to fill up that time with more vocal prayer, even spiritual reading. We have to remember something here, my friends. While vocal prayer is a very, very good thing, a necessary thing, obviously, and spiritual reading itself can certainly enhance the spiritual life, there are times for deeper contemplation, for that more silent love. And when we replace that silent love, that deeper contemplation, with anything other than silence, we are getting in the way of God talking to us. Because even our vocal prayer, if there is a complete and utter absence of contemplation, 
can be shattered from the adversary. Sometimes we just need to be silent. Vocal prayer has a place, obviously. Spiritual reading has a place, obviously. But take note of what happened in that encounter between Sister Faustina and our Lord. Huh? She was called to enter into that silent love, and she pulled away from that, filling it up with vocal prayer and spiritual reading. Timing is everything, and I want to encourage us to be present to that. You know, reading about Jesus can be a very good thing, um, but should we not be speaking to Jesus and in that mode of contemplation, adoring Jesus? Huh? So we have to make sure we find that balance. We are always to remember that the first step in every walk towards sainthood is a surrender of one's whole interior world, a trust that allows essentially the second step to be taken, right? That is the process of actualizing who we are as we seek to give glory to God in our vocational journey of loving, willing the good of the other. My dear friends, let us never lose sight of that first vocation of becoming a saint. Loving God and existing for other. Living in the gap between the person we are and the person we ought to meet. God meets us exactly where we are, and he does so exactly as he is. We just need to open ourselves up to him. Certainly, St. Faustina understood well that living in the gap was the vocation of converting and loving the zone of the interior world. That place of silence. Now, all that being said, and returning to the more historical elements of our narrative on our topic of mercy, the message of divine mercy that Jesus was calling Sister Faustina to spread was spreading. Huh? Before her death in October of 1938, less than a year before the start of World War II, and certainly with the help of her great spiritual director, Father Michael Sapaco, and I should say, blessed Father Sapaco, the message of divine mercy was gaining steam throughout not only Poland, but all of its surrounding countries. From prayer cards to pamphlets to booklets, many souls were being drawn to the image of divine mercy and ultimately the grace of this saving message. That being said, as some of us know, the spreading of the message would hit a bump in the road, as it were. As devotion to the message of divine mercy was spreading, there was a request for more prayer cards, more pamphlets, booklets, etc. And at one point, the superior general of Sister Faustina's community had one of the sisters of the community type out one of the handwritten handbooks of Sister Faustina. And unfortunately, as the story goes, it was not done carefully. And the final piece, tragically so, was full of omissions and errors. To make matters worse, as you can well imagine, from this typewritten version, more prayer cards and pamphlets were made, and more copies were made from those in other countries, and before you know it, well, you have a serious problem on your hand. And so as the devotion would grow, those heirs were brought to the attention of priests and theologians, and by 1958, the Holy Office was set to issue a decree that would have prohibited devotion to the Divine Mercy as it was initially presented by Sister Faustina. However, in a fascinating moment in history, really, because Pius XII was so ill 
The decree was put at the bottom of a very large pile of things to do for the next pope. Now, who was the next pope? Well, the next pope was John the Twenty-Third, who instinctively, we'll say for now, flipped the pile over. So whatever was at the bottom of that pile would now be the first thing to be addressed. Essentially, the very first thing that John the Twenty-Third addressed as pope was the message of divine mercy. How about that? So John the Twenty-Third would look at this decree. And as it was famously reported by his secretary, he would say, no, no, not yet. The bishops of Poland must look at this closer. This is too important. But because of communist oppression, the bishops of Poland were not able to properly correspond with the Vatican. So on March 6th, 1959, the Vatican put a halt to spreading the devotion until further notification. Now, who was one of those bishops in Poland? Well, you know who was one of those bishops in Poland, right? Karol Wojtyla, John Paul II. And be rest assured, he was pouring through those messages to make sure that there was no error in them. Now, while in some circles, this notification was received with great sadness. But for some, those who might have read Faustina's diary carefully, these events may have not come as a shock because, well, Faustina predicted this, huh? If you were to go to paragraph and entry 378, what do we read? This is directly from Sister Faustina's diary. Once I was talking to my spiritual director, I had an interior vision, quicker than lightning, of his soul in great suffering, in such agony that God touched very few souls with such fire. The suffering arises from this work. There will come a time from this work which God is demanding so very much, will be though as utterly undone. And then God will act with great power, which will give evidence of its power and authenticity. It will be a new splendor for the church, although it has been dormant from long ago. When this triumph comes, we shall already have entered the new life in which there is no suffering. But before this, your soul, Father Sapako, will be surfed with bitterness at the sight of the destruction of your efforts. Mm. Remember, my friends, this was written in the 30s, okay? We also read in entry 1659, no matter if there are times where the work seems to be completely destroyed, it is then that the work will all the more be consolidated. As it relates to Father Sapaco, Sister Faustina's spiritual director, he was being mocked by his fellow bishops and clergy who on some occasions went so far as to call him a crazy mystic. I mean, imagine that. Now, he suffered greatly, and dying three years before the ban was lifted, Father Sapaco would never experience the joy that may have been his if, in fact, he was still alive. Now, of course, as blessed, blessed Father Sapaco, we know he was beamed up to heaven, right, and experienced a joy far greater than he would have received if he was still alive. And is that not a theme we find within the life of every saint? This experience of suffering, this experience of uh, poverty. Anyhow, as some of us may be aware, the ban was lifted right. But how? How was the ban lifted? Well, in answering that question, first we should say something about the Polish people, the Polish laity. Then Archbishop Wojtyła, again, who we know as St. John Paul II, 
recounted in one journal entry, the Polish faithful are bombarding me, bombarding me with requests to begin the process. And of course, by process, Boitiwa means the process of Sister Faustina being beatified and canonized, right? Here, I should mention something else. We ought to remember that the church always respects what is called the vox populi, the voice of the people. In point of fact, this is very much a part of the process for the Vatican to start their process on the holiness of a potential saint, right? Now, the reality is, Archbishop Wojtyla did not need a lot of prodding because his own vocation was very much influenced by these messages. And as he would write in one particular journal entry, in speaking of God's divine mercy, this is first and foremost in my mind. Hopefully, we will begin this year. And, as it turns out, in a moment of great providence, less than a month later from that journal entry, Wojtyla was exiting St. Peter's Basilica and just happened to bump into one Cardinal Ottoviani. Now, Cardinal Ottoviani was the prefect for the Holy Office, so upon bumping into Ottoviani, John Paul II and one of his closest friends who himself had a devotion to divine mercy inquired, Cardinal, can we begin the process? And what was Ottoviani's response? What? You haven't started yet? Hurry before the witnesses die. Let me repeat that. Listen to what Cardinal Ottoviani says in response to Wojtyla and his friend. What? You haven't started it yet? Hurry before the witnesses die. You see, this cardinal had his pulse on the increase in devotion to divine mercy and had a deep sense of its relative nature to where the church was heading. And so it was. <laughs> a month later, the process, if you will, the process started. The process into researching the life and virtue of Sister Faustina. And as many of us are aware, she quickly received the title Servant of God, and as the Vatican's appreciation of Sister Faustina grew, on April 15, 1978, the Sacred Congregation for the Canonization of Saints issued a new notification, and this is what it had to say. This Sacred Congregation, having now in its possession the many original documents, unknown in 1959, have taken into consideration the profoundly changed circumstances and having taken into account the opinion of many Polish ordinaries, certainly led by John Paul II, declares no longer the prohibitions contained in the quoted notifications of 1959. In other words, the ban was lifted just six months before Cardinal Wojtyla would become Pope John Paul II. Isn't that fascinating? And as you can well imagine, <laughs> God's divine mercy would become the banner of his pontificate, and we will talk about that next week. Um, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we do give you special thanks and praise for the gift of this evening, the wonderful opportunity that you have provided for us to reflect into love's second name, mercy. We are always humble before the greatness of your mercy. And we pray, all glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.
Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.